We're actually starting a new series for the book of June entitled Forged in Fire. Can you look to your neighbor and say, Forged in Fire? Forged, forged in fire. So we're starting this new series called Forged in Fire. And so we're going to be talking about um, the life of Moses, and we're going to be looking at some interesting things about his life. And so we're going to jump into Exodus chapter 1, um, verses 8. Actually, we're going to read 8 through 22, I believe. And Exodus means the road out of. Exodus means the road out of. And so um, here we go in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. It says, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So let, let, let me kind of give you a little bit of context of what's happening here. There was, there was a new king that came. There was a new king, a new pharaoh that came into power in Egypt, and he didn't know about Joseph. And if you don't know about Joseph. Joseph can be found in the book of Genesis, the book before Genesis, the book of beginnings, Exodus, the road out of. In the book of Genesis, it talks about a young man by the name of Joseph who was a dreamer, and he had lots of dreams, and his dreams got him in trouble often. And so he would tell his family about his dreams. His family got upset, and his brothers sold him, as, uh, sold him into slavery in Egypt. And so he was in Egypt, and he was uh, enslaved, and he was in a pit, And while he was there, the pharaoh of Egypt had a dream. And he had a dream with seven cows and seven stalks of grain. And uh, he wasn't entirely sure what was going on with this dream. And so he called Joseph because Joseph was known for interpreting his dreams. He called Joseph. And Joseph showed up and Joseph said, this is what the dream means. He said, there will be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of drought. Seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of drought. And so Joseph said, what you need to do is you need to stockpile, you need to store up during the seven years of plenty so that you're ready for the seven years of drought. And so the Pharaoh listened to Joseph, and because of Joseph's words, he said, I need to put someone in charge of all this. So put Joseph in charge of all of Egypt, and he, he took care of all this, a huge administrative task where they, they took in all the grain, they took in all the food for the seven years of plenty. And then when the seven years of drought came, they were prepared, and all people from all over the land came to Egypt because Egypt had food. And so Joseph essentially saved Egypt, saved the land, saved the people, and so the people in Egypt loved Joseph. And, and, and here we have a story of a new pharaoh who came into power who knew nothing about him. How many of you guys know it's good to remember your past, amen? Like sometimes people want to, you know, for, hey, you need to forget your past, you need to like forget history, but it's good to remember your past. And here, here was a guy who had forgotten his own history. And so he forgot his history, he forgot his past. And so here's this new king uh, who came and Joseph mean, meant nothing to him. If you keep on reading, it says, so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh But the more they oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. Can you look to your neighbor and say, ruthlessly? I don't think. Ruthlessly. (laughs) They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in bricks and mortar 
and with all kinds of work in the fields and all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. And the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shephara and Pua, what a name, huh? When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. So because of what was happening, a nation was rising up within a nation. The Israelites were multiplying. The Pharaoh said, we're going to have some population control. We're going to kill the boys that are born and let the women live. The The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live, praise the Lord. And then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives, ans- the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are, are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives o- o- arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, He gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born must be thrown into the Nile, but let every girl live. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? When a boy is born, throw him into the the river. I worship you. God, I pray that your word will just speak to us this morning. I pray that you will be glorified and that you'll be lifted high. God, I pray that these words that were written many, many, many years ago, um, will speak to us again today. God, we can come to your word. It, it just amazes me how we can come to your word and read it, and you can speak to us one way, and then we can read it again later, and it can speak to us in another way. It amazes me how your word is so alive. And I pray that um, you'll, you'll have it come alive again this morning, God. We believe in, the, in your word, and we believe in its power. We believe that you can do a life-changing work in our lives this morning, God, as we study your word, God, we give you, again, we give you the glory and the praise. Amen. So I just had a couple thoughts for you guys, and then I'll be done. A couple thoughts, a couple simple thoughts. Um, you know, as I was reading this, I don't know why this had never stuck out before, but a couple things really stood out to me um, as I read this again, and I think I've read this passage many, many times, but a couple things really stuck out to stood out to me. Um, It's interesting how how there was a lot of persecution. Um, In fact, it it seems like it's 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 almost like overboard. If you go back to verse 11, if you look at it again, look at at all the times that they mention like um, oppression and it says, so they put the slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And then if you look at verse 12, it says, but the more they were oppressed, and then if you go down to verse 13, it says, they worked them ruthlessly. And then if you look at verse 14, it says, they made their lives bitter with harsh labor uh, in, in, in bricks and mortar with all kinds of work in the field. And, all, and, and they were, and then in verse, uh, I guess it's still in verse 13, in, in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. I don't know. When I'm reading that, I just it seems like speaking over and over and over again about their persecution, about their oppression, about their forced labor, about 
how bitter it was, how ruthless it was. It mentions ruthless a couple times. It, work, it mentions all the kinds of work that they were doing. I, it looks like the church, it looks like the, the people of God were facing a lot of persecution, doesn't it? Like, they, they were being enslaved. The, they, they'd forgotten about um, Joseph, and this nation was rising up within a nation, and here's this Pharaoh and oppression, 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 bitter work, harsh labor, harsh labor, ruthless, ruthless. You see this this theme over and over and over again, the persecution of the people of God. But what's interesting is in the midst of persecution, you also see something else that's happening as well. You see that in persecution, there's multiplication. Do you see that as well? So there's all this persecution that's happening, all this oppression that's happening, all this forced labor that's happening. They're being worked ruthlessly. They're being worked ruthlessly. You see all this that's happening on one side, but then on the other side of things, in the middle of their persecution, you see that there's, they're being multiplied. Like, you see that their numbers are growing, which almost seems, doesn't it almost seem like counter, like, what should be happening? Like, if, 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 if you are persecuting someone, if you are trying to kill people, if you're trying to hold them down, if you're trying to hold them back, if you're trying to do all these things to stop them from, 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 from being prosperous, it seems weird that they're prosperous, that they're prosperous. That seems weird that they're prospering in the face of persecution. You know what I'm saying? But, but if you look at persecution and then you go back and you look at all the spots where it talks about multiplication, go back to, if you go back to verse um, 9, it says, look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous. And then in verse 10, he says, they're even more numerous. They're growing. Again, a nation is growing in within a nation. They're, they're, they're coming up. And then in verse 20, he says, so, 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 so God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. So in the middle of their persecution, they're becoming more numerous, and they're multiplying and they're growing incredibly quickly. You know, I heard a, that there was a, a rabbi who once said that the Hebrew women during this time were having six children at a time. Like, if you look at how quickly they, they multiplied, it's miraculous. It is insane. It is, it, it, it's like, it, to, to, so, so from the, the number, I forget the exact number, but the number of them that came in to Egypt with Joseph uh, to the time that they left in exile left, left, it, it was like it was like a multi, it was an incredible crazy multiplication like in the midst of their persecution God multiplied them in a supernatural way like a, like like the octo mom has nothing on them right like it was like child after child after child after child they were growing intensely in their persecution, in the midst of their persecution, which seems insane to me. I don't quite understand it. Again, it seems like it's, it's like it doesn't seem like it makes, makes biological sense. Like if these people are being oppressed and they're working hard all the time, like how do they time to, how do they have time to make babies? First of all, but also if they're like not being nursed, probably like it doesn't make sense how these people were flourishing in the face of opposition and in the face of persecution. It's insane. It's almost like when you go out 
and you, 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 look at your, you, you look at your yard, and in your yard there's a ton of weeds everywhere, and you have, a, you have a spot in your yard where you can't seem to get the grass to grow. You plant the seeds there, you water it, you do everything, maybe even try to throw some sod on it, and the sod dies. Anyone ever have a patch like that in your yard? You just can't seem to get it to grow. Dean knows what I'm talking about. But then you go and you look in your, in your driveway, in the cracks in your driveway, and somehow in the cracks in your driveway where it doesn't seem like there's any dirt, it's just all out in the sun, there's nothing there, it seems like it's the harshest environment, that's where the grass is flourishing, and it drives me nuts, and you go up there, and you take a stick, well, maybe not a stick, you take like a rake, no, a rake wouldn't work, you take like a, a stretcher? An edger, you take an edger, you take a stretcher to bury him, son, um, you take an edger, and you just start digging it, you take a, you take a hoe, and you, and, and you, and you dig your, and you dig it out, and you go out there the next week, and the grass is there again. And you're like, what in the world? You go out again, and you start digging at your driveway, and you're digging at it again, and you're digging at it again. You go out again in a few weeks, and it's there again. You're like, oh, my goodness, what can I do to kill this grass? Anyone else? No one? That's just me? My struggle? Okay, I'm sorry. But I feel like that's the way that Pharaoh was with these people in Egypt. There was a nation. He was persecuting them. He was trying to stop them from multiplying, and everything that he did... Every, every, everything that he tried wasn't working, and they were flourishing in the face of persecution. And you know what's crazy? Like, I think throughout history, throughout history, this is a principle of the church. Like, in the face of persecution, you can see that throughout history, in the face of persecution, the church has multiplied. Amen? And some of you, some of you here today might be like, oh my goodness, like I've, I've faced all sorts of persecution because I'm a Christian. I face persecution because, you know, I feel it's all the stuff that's happening. And, but the church has flourished in the face of persecution. And you can see this throughout history. In fact, even if you go over to the New Testament, you can see that there was a guy named Saul who was persecuting the church. And he went off and he was trying to get letters and to, to, to drag off women and women, men and women and throw them in prison. And uh, he killed someone. He thought, wow, this is a great opportunity for the church to be stopped. He killed someone. And in Acts chapter 8, it says the church, the church was scattered. And you would think the church being scattered, everything would stop. Everything would, uh, you know, everything. It's, it's like, okay, I dug the weeds out of my driveway. It's not, but it, but it was an amazing time of growth in the church when there was persecution, okay? In the 1940s in China, um, before the 1940s, they, there was, um, there was freedom of religious expression in China. And in 1949, I believe it was, the, they began to persecute the church. And they began to um, uh, close the churches down. Uh, they began to drag off pastors and throw them in prison and throw them in jail. And um, the church went underground in the 1940s in China. Church wasn't allowed in China. Christians weren't allowed in China. I remember uh, when I was in college many, many years ago, um, we actually sent some, some students uh, from Evangel University over to China. And uh, it was a big deal because if they were caught, well, it, wasn't so ba- it wasn't so bad for, for uh, the, the students that we were sending over there, but if they caught people that were taking the Bibles that we were giving them over in China, the people that accepted the Bibles it, they could go to prison. And so um, the, I remember our students went over there to China and they came back and they were sharing what happened when they went to China. And they said they were in customs waiting in line and the, the Chinese customs were coming in and they were taking out people in front of them and behind them and among them, but all of them made through into China, amen, which is really cool. And they said that they went from one place to another place to another place, just dropping off 
Bibles in China, dropping off Bibles. Just they'd, they'd jump on a train, they'd drop them off, and, and they were just spreading the word of God in China, which is really awesome. Well, you would think with all the persecution that happened in China that maybe Christianity would be snuffled out, like maybe there wouldn't be very many, you know, the popular. But what, what, what they found when they went back and we were able to look at what would happen in China was that the church had not died, but the church was flourishing. It had grown not by thousands, but it had grown by millions in China, which is awesome, right? So even in the face of persecution, amen, the church grows, and the church flourishes. In fact, in fact, Jesus said this to Peter. He said, Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen? So all that to say, I think sometimes, all that to say is sometimes, in the face of persecution, in the face of suffering, in the face of difficulties, um, we kind of wonder where God's at, right? We kind of wonder, what, like, what's the purpose in all this? Kind of wonder what's happening. But if I can just say that I think that sometimes God uses persecution and sometimes he uses suffering to bring glory to his name, And really, I do believe this, that there's something about persecution. It's almost like there's a, it's like a separation. Like some people are like, well, why in the world would the church flourish in persecution? I don't understand that. Why would the church flourish in persecution? Um, I think there's something to be said about, um, it's almost like, the chaff being separated from the wheat. You know, it's, it's like when, when, times, when times get tough and if you're merely a fan of Jesus, when, when things get tough, you're like, yeah, yeah, no, I'm out of here. I am, I'm, this isn't for me, right? But when times get tough and you are a devoted follower, pursuer of Jesus Christ, and there's that separation, and people see someone that, man, there's fruit there. It's attractive to the world. You know what I'm talking about? And even though it seems like the church should not flourish in persecution, even though it seems like you shouldn't flourish in your persecution, you shouldn't flourish in your hardships, like God wants to use that to bring glory to his name. He wants to use that so that when people look at you, they can see him in you, in your times of difficulty, in your times of struggle. So the first thing that I see, which is so crazy, is persecution and multiplication. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem to make sense. It seems like an oxymoron. It, it seems like that, that, that shouldn't be the case. But you look here, and you can see that there is multiplication during persecution, during suffering. The second thing, the last thing that I have to say is um, that's wild to me. Second thought is God's sovereignty. Can you look at your neighbor and say, God's sovereignty. Now say it in your best 
King James voice called sovereignty. <laughs> okay. God's sovereignty. Persecution and multiplication. It seems weird, but also it seems strange. God's sovereignty. If you can imagine taking yourself out of, like not knowing the entire story of the Bible, you can imagine only being um, a person of God during these 400 years in Egypt. And imagine that you're someone that lived between the 200th year and the 300th year. So all that you had known would be oppression. All that you had known would have been slavery. All that you had known would have been building uh, bricks uh, with mud and hay and straw. All that you would have known was that your child that was born was thrown into the river. All that you would have known. I mean, it would have seemed like a pretty devastating life to live, being born in captivity in Egypt, thinking about the promises of God, but never maybe even really thoroughly experiencing them. Like you're someone, and, 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 and your life is, is, maybe you have like 20 kids, right? And they're all girls, and, and, and oh my goodness, could you imagine that? It's like, you know, like the Duggars on crack. It's like, oh my goodness, this is insane. Like, so you have all these kids, like maybe you have all this stuff, but could you imagine living um, during that time? I could imagine coming to God and, and asking God why, God why, I would think why this would happen. Um, have you forgotten about me? Have, have you led me here to die? Like everything, like, like I, I, I know your promises. I, I know what you've said, but I, I, I don't entirely, I, I, I don't see anything. All I know is oppression and suffering and slavery. God's sovereignty. What's, what's really interesting is, if you have your Bibles, turn back, to Exodus, or turn back to Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 16. And this is where Abraham was, goes out into the field and is looking up at the stars. Many years before, Many years before, God speaks to Abraham prophetically, speaking to him of the things that are going to be happening in the future, many years into the future. And, and I think we kind of get insight into what God was doing while the people of Israel were in captivity in Egypt. And I, I would say that he was doing two things. He was, first of all, developing his people. Developing his people. He was honing them into whom he wanted them to be. He was making them long for a deliverer. He was making them become reliant on him. He was making them yearn for freedom. You know, there's something about going through a, a trial or a hardship that, that makes you realize that you're in need of a healer. Amen? There's something about going through a hardship that makes you realize that you're in need of a redeemer. Like when you are at your wit's end and you have nowhere else to turn, man, there's something about being in that spot that makes you totally and completely reliant on God. And, 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 and the Lord was developing his people. But also, he was bringing about his 
judgment on the Amorites. So take a look in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 16, it says. And again, Abraham, he's outside. He's looking at the stars. He has this experience with the Lord. And the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. Isn't that, isn't that amazing that, that the Lord specifically said to Abraham, this is what's going to happen. Your people, your descendants, they're going to go into it. They're going to be strangers in a country that's not their own, and, that, and, they're, and they're going to be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation that serves them as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. In fact, if you read, I think it's in Exodus chapter, it, it, I forget what chapter it's in, but if you, if you read in Exodus, when they left the people of Egypt, it actually says that they plundered all of their possessions. They took everything from the Egyptians. Like the Egyptians wanted them out of there so bad because of the plague, plagues, they, they plundered the Egyptians and then left. So again, the Lord is speaking of something that is that surely happened. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions everything that the Egyptians had. You, however, will go to your ancestors in in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sins of the Amorites. Isn't that interesting? Has not yet reached its full measure. So what he was saying to Abraham is, first of all, I'm, I'm developing my people. I have this plan. I have this sovereign plan, and, and, and I'm developing them. But also, I want to eventually bring my judgment on the Amorites. And can you believe it took God 400 years to bring his judgment on these people? Like, four, like talk about being slow to anger. You know what I'm talking about? 400 years. And then finally he says, okay, that's enough. I'm going to take care of the Amorites and the, and the Canaanites. But, 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 but you see that he, he was developing his people, and he was bringing about his judgment on the Amorites. And so... Um, when I read this, it, it, you can see that God had a plan from the beginning. You can see his sovereignty from the beginning. You know, sometimes I think we, 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 we look at our life um, through, it, it's like we're nearsighted and we have no peripheral vision. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, have you ever seen someone with those big old Coke glasses? It was like they near, super nearsighted. And, 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 we have, and we don't have peripheral vision. We look at our situation, and we look at it just, 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 just merely in, just in the snapshot of time, and we see the things that are happening, and we don't entirely know why. We don't know why we lost our job. We don't know why uh, things fell apart in this relationship. We don't know why. Uh, we, we look at it, and we just, don't, we just don't understand in the snapshot of eternity. But here's God looking in on us in the strands of time. And Scripture says that he is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the first, and the last. He knows our story before it even begins. He knows our coming. He knows our going. We, we might look at our situation and wonder, why in the world is this happening to me? 2010, I didn't have a job. I didn't have a house. I was driving a minivan. My life was fantastic. 
And I was applying for a bunch of different jobs. I wasn't getting any. I wasn't even getting any, any interviews, Lori. I was applying for all these jobs. No one's calling me back. I'm like, my life is a failure. I don't understand. There's grass growing in the driveway. <laughs> I need therapy. But I was looking at my life in a snapshot instead of realizing that God was in control. That God saw the entire picture and the strands of time. That God knew my coming and my going. He knew that it was just, it was merely a season where he wanted to refresh me, where I could stay home and hang out with my lovely mother-in-law all day. (laughs) It was merely... It was merely a a glimmer. It was merely a moment in my life where God was trying to develop me, change me, mold me, transform me, use me for his purposes. So if you find yourself here this morning in one of those seasons, take hope, and the worship team can come back up. If you find yourself this morning in one of these seasons, Take hope and joy in, first of all, that in persecution, the Lord multiplies. He multiplies. But also remember that God works all things out for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. He works all things out for those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. It's not like he's, it's not like he's guessing. It's not like, it's not like he's saying, uh, you know, uh, I'm not entirely sure where you're going to go, Bella. I've been thinking about it, and I've just been stumbling around. It's not like he's guessing. He knows exactly what he has in plan for you. It's not like he's thinking, oh, I wonder if you're going to sell your house, Sarah. It's not like he's like, oh, maybe, like, maybe this might happen. Maybe you might find a new house. Like, he already knows. He was there before you were even there. The sovereignty of God. In your persecution, there can be multiplication. But also remember the sovereignty of God. And remember that if you're in a season that seems like it's a little rough, it seems like you're being slay, it seems like there's oppression and ruthlessness, Remember the sovereignty of God. Why don't you guys stand up with me? So we sing this song one last time. God, we give you the glory and the praise.